Welcome to Better Friendships, a podcast all about making, growing, and maintaining friendships that sustain, fulfill, and enrich our lives. We're your hosts, Julie and Katie. And it's been a while since we've gotten together and chatted, hasn't it? It really has. It's been a super busy spring and summer for both of us. Yeah, it definitely has. And full disclosure, I am in a beach house today with a few other people. Um, So hopefully we don't have a ton of background noise, but we'll see. Um, But we're here and we're back. And today we are going to continue with our series on the history of female friendships. And we're going to talk about friendships between 1950 and the mid 1980s. This is a really interesting time for both women's friendships and women's rights. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to dive into in this episode. And today we're actually going to get started with a special guest. So I would like to welcome to the podcast my mother-in-law, Meg, who is going to tell us a little bit about her career as a flight attendant in the 60s and some of her memories of that time. Welcome, Meg. We're so glad to have you here. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us today. Well, you are so welcome. It's nice to be with you both. I'm enjoying talking about some of these things, which I've dredged up from the past. (laughs) I'm so glad. Um, And yes, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you're here with me at the Beach House. Um, So I thought we might get started talking about your college experience. Okay. Well, in 1962... Many, many years ago, I graduated from high school. I went to a young women's college, St. Mary's Junior College in Raleigh for two years. Then I transferred to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, which was overwhelmingly larger than St. Mary's. (laughs) 30,000 people, which seemed like a tremendous number. And I graduated with a degree in uh, English education, which means you could teach English in high schools. But what I did for my first part of my work life was uh, apply for and get a job with United Airlines as a flight attendant, which was then referred to as a stewardess. And we were based in about eight different places, but my base was Chicago, Illinois. So the first part of the job entailed moving to Chicago, actually right outside Chicago near the airport, and taking a six weeks course in first aid and uh, emergency evacuation procedures from the airplane and how airlines worked in type uh, like bidding for your, your line, it was called. Every month you got a new schedule, which you bid for. And due to your seniority, it determined how good the schedule would be. So the girls who had been flying for a long, long time got the great trips like back and forth to Hawaii. (laughs) And people like me got day trips to Moline, Illinois. (laughs) Exciting experiences. But it was really fun to be a flight attendant. Once I got through the training course, I went to work and I've uh, worked for several years with the airlines, during which time I was based in Chicago and then later in New York, where I moved to live with some of my sorority sisters from college. And I enjoyed every bit of it. Um, Some days were more fun than others. (laughs) 
I was very shy at the time I got this job, but I do credit the job for giving me a lot more exposure to people and a lot more comfort level with being around people. Um, one of the things I actually liked very much about it was the fact that we wore uniforms because I realized quickly that people have no hesitation in coming up and talking to you when you have a uniform on. Whereas if you don't, they just think you're another passenger and ignore you. And <laughs> it was easy to be the person that they thought they were talking to after a while. Um, I enjoyed meeting a lot of different people and there were always many, many different types of people and family groups and all those things on the airline, on the airplanes. It was different than it is today because uh, flight attendants were considered a little more, uh, I don't know, upscale is not quite the right word, but for example, we had uniforms and we had changes of clothing. If we were working a trip, we would change into some attractive apron or something. It was very, <laughs> very uh, not like it is today. We had heels and we had flat shoes. We had different things that we wore. <laughs> uh, and all the meals were silverware and linen and linen napkins and uh now it's a little bit more uh <laughs> like a greyhound bus terminal <laughs> <laughs> but it's still fun i think uh, every time we take a flight now i still enjoy uh kind of seeing and talking to some people that are on board um I've been reading thrillers about flight attendants lately, which there seem to be four or five on the market right now. And so I guess that's a, a popular thing at the moment. Luckily, I didn't have anything terrifically scary happen when I was flying, but I did have some medical emergencies. Uh, one woman went into a diabetic coma and we had to make an emergency landing to get her to a hospital. and somebody else severely injured their leg. And I think it was probably broken. We had to do a little first aid for that. There were a number of minor, minor issues like that, but uh, overall I was spared anything tremendously terrifying. <laughs> was it mostly women working as flight attendants at the time? Were there any men? It was mostly women, but there were some men uh, they were stewards, we were a stewardess, um, and, and in the there were three men who, um, the captain, the co-captain, and the flight engineer. Whereas now I think it's just two. So much more is automated now. But uh, the stewards were not, they weren't as prevalent, but there were uh, some around. And all of us were limited to how long we could be in the air on any given day. So if the plane was delayed, we might have to make a sudden change in our schedule. If we'd been away 10 hours and you know, we, we would have to stay overnight in a hotel that we hadn't planned to. So we always traveled with the ability to be gone for a couple of days when we left home. Even if we were supposed to be get back that night, we couldn't count on that. So that was fun. I met a lot of really interesting 
girls and became good friends with some of them. And um, they were from all around the country, which was a treat for me. Everybody thought that I was Canadian because I have a Southern accent and I say out and house and things like that. And people would frequently ask me what part of Canada I was from, <laughs> <laughs> which my parents didn't think was too funny, but I did. <laughs> was it com- like, was it competitive at all? Or would you say that the women that you were working with, it was easy to make friends and. I found it easy to make friends because on any given flight, uh, it was a very quick process of meeting the people because I didn't know them beforehand. I never was flying with people that I knew, but we all had a common goal from the very beginning, which we all clearly understood was to get the job done, keep the passengers happy, do what we needed to do to make it a successful flight. And so that was pretty clear in everybody's mind. Um, every now and then we'd have somebody that was sort of a slacker (laughs) and they'd try to sneak off in one of the back seats or something and take a nap, but but that was not appreciated by the rest of us. (laughs) But most of the time, um, it was quite easy to make friends and I really enjoyed the girls that I met during that period of time. The, uh, the flight crew, the captain and other the co-pilot and so forth, they were on different schedules than we were. And most of them were a little older and um, had been doing this a lot longer than we had. So we were somewhat at different stages of our life, but we still had a nice rapport. That's good. Why do you think there were more women that were stewardess stewardesses at the time than men? And I I think it's still kind of that way. Why do you think that is? I feel like it was one of the jobs that was out there that women could do that gave them a certain amount of freedom, which was not available in many other jobs for women at that time, um, to take off and fly around the country or out of the country and be completely on your own, that was not currently, at that time, was not that accepted. In fact, my career in the flight attendant business fell into a strange little niche because um, after I started flying, the Equal Opportunities Act was passed in the United States. Um, Up until that time, the airlines fired you if you got married. They didn't even have to fire you. It was just understood that your job terminated if you got married. And when the Equal Opportunities Act passed, suddenly that was illegal. But the airlines didn't comply. Like United Airlines did not comply with that new legal ruling. And so I had to quit when I got married, which was in uh, 1968 to my dear husband, whom I've now been married to for 53 years. Congratulations. (laughs) Father-in-law. But at that time, uh, there was no doubt that I would have to quit. I couldn't keep on going with my flight attendant job, which I certainly would have had I had the opportunity. 
So that was uh, disappointing. And I'd love, you know, I, I think it's interesting that, of course, women now would never have the thought that ha they'd have to quit because they got married. But they do still have to juggle a lot of things if they're married flight attendants, especially with children or anything. But yeah, they've managed to do it. A lot of them have managed to do it. I after the law was changed and I had resigned and time went by, this was battled out in the courts for about, uh, well, let's just say in 1975, I was, I received a letter asking me if I would like my job back because, um, and also they the, the alternative, or would I like a payout? The payout was something like um, $19,000. Or I could have gone back to work for the airline. By that time, we were living in Virginia Beach, and I would have had to drive to Washington in order to commute to do that. So I didn't seriously consider it. Okay. That's interesting <laughs> that they, it was just understood that you would quit. Well, it was, it was a rule that the airline had because they wanted cute, young, fancy <laughs> <laughs> flight attendants. I mean, it wasn't like being a Playboy bunny, but it was somewhere down the scale of, in their minds, you know, being attractive was a key uh, component to this thing as much as being able to give somebody oxygen if they needed it. So, um they felt that it was well within their rights to say whether or not they would hire somebody married or single. Mm -hmm. They didn't feel that they couldn't do that. And uh, luckily for women, the law supported them in the end. So, but it took a while <laughs> for all that to get worked out. They gave you a honeymoon, right? They you. did. <laughs> Well, the, the reason for that actually was not quite as sweet as it seems. The reason for that was that they didn't want you to lie and say that you weren't married. If you got married and you didn't tell them, they wouldn't be able to know to fire you. So if you got married and you told them, they gave you a honeymoon pass, and that was a big incentive to fess up and tell them you were getting married and then then they would know um they gave you the honeymoon pass but of course you no longer had a job and uh they would hire some other newbie because the longer you work for them the more you get paid so it's troublesome to hire new people all the time but at the other end of that from their perspective they were happy to have new people coming on all all, all the way along senior uh, flight attendants who had been doing it for years and years and years kind of did not get the same level of respect from the airline that they really probably should have because they just felt like they were old and gray, you know, and should be out to pasture. <laughs> yeah. They did give me a honeymoon pass and Bill and I took it to go to Hawaii on our honeymoon. We could go anywhere that United flu and that was the most choice spot in our estimation so that was a good deal thanks 
So you had said that being a flight attendant was not considered, you know, risky, but most, most people didn't do that because it was very adventurous. When you first came home and told your family that you were going to be a stewardess and, and you were going to be flying all over the world, what was their reaction? Were they supportive? Well, not at first. They were horrified. They, it, it never crossed their minds that I might do something like that. And one of my friends was doing it. So I got the idea that maybe I could. We went to Washington to interview and I thought, well, I'll just have a shot at this too, but it probably won't work out. And when they did offer me the job, my parents had had much more uh, of an idea that I would use my uh, degree from college and my teaching certificate to go into some job as a teacher in, a, in high school. That was, that was their career plan for me. My father was a lawyer and he uh, unfortunately did not have a great perspective on women being liberated. Uh, I talked to him at one point about going to law school and he said, well, you could be a paralegal. But in his mind, I would not have begun, I would not have gone through three years of law school and become a lawyer, yeah. which a lot of women did and do, but uh, my parents were, more of the old school mindset so no they weren't they weren't thrilled but I think they did get a lot of kicks later on out of saying to their friends you know well she's traveling around the country and <laughs> that sort of thing so that was fun for them after a while <laughs> that's good I'm glad they kind of came around yeah <laughs> certainly we did have some fun adventures on some of these trips, and uh, Bill said I should tell you about one of them that was just kind of funny. Um, I was chosen to fly a charter flight, and it was uh, started, I believe, in Dallas, Texas. So um, I flew from Chicago down to Dallas, where we picked up this flight, and it was a, a charter plane from Texas to I think San Francisco, and it was a group of Japanese businessmen who had been touring around in Texas, and they did not speak very much English, so on the trip down, we learned a few words in Japanese, thank you, and so forth, and uh, we got there, and, and these men came on <laughs> the plane, and they had acquired a number of um, souvenirs of their trip. But the funniest one that I remember was this one man had a enormous set of longhorn horns from <laughs> a bull. And these things were like six feet long. And he carries them up the plane, you know, up the steps of the plane and just kind of hands them to us. And the other girl and I looked at each other like, where in the hell are we going to put these horns? <laughs> <laughs> We don't have any, you know, we don't have any containers for horns. So I think we finally got a wedged into one of the overhead things, or maybe we tied them to the to the floor. But uh, we got them tied down, and we were able to take off with the horns on board. And then Sorry. Captain had a great time teasing us about that on the trip. 
Can you imagine being on a flight and opening up the overhead bin and there's just horns? And a... <laughs> You're like, how on earth did they get those home? <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. We said, what do you think the next, uh, the next group of people are going to tell him? I'm telling him you can't take that on their plane. Then what? <laughs> anyway, they had a great time in Texas and thought they were big cowboys now. So. <laughs> There were lots of fun times like that. And so um, I'll say it was not a boring kind of job. You never knew what you would be having or who would be on a plane on any given day. So that kept it pretty interesting for several years. I would not have quit had I not gotten married. But at the time, um, Bill was starting to go to graduate school in the Chicago area. And so I, since I had to quit, I went to graduate school too. We both went to Northwestern. Um, and that was great because I was already living up there. So it worked out fine. I feel like there are probably lots of questions too that we could ask about graduate school. I don't know if we have <laughs> women's friendships it's it's a great place to make friendships I think graduate school is and that by that time a lot of people do have a pretty clear image of what sort of life path and their job pursuit they want to tackle and so they welcome other people who are like-minded and going into the same fields and I think that's very encouraging to talk to people who are interested in the same thing you are. Um, during the time I was a flight attendant, I did live in New York City for a little while, and I was so lucky then because due to some of my female friendships from college, I had some college friends who were working in New York. One was working for Clairol, <laughs> which is hair dye. And uh, one was working in an advertising agency in New York City, and they had a great apartment, which they kindly let me move into. So we had, I think, four of us sharing an apartment, um, East 38th Street, in the middle of everything. So that was fun. And I never would have been able to really do that had I not had friends that said, come on, you know, you can stay with us. So... Lots of times in my life, my female friendships have been there for me in some form or other, and I've been very grateful to have friends like that. Um, I still have friends I was in high school with. Of course, we don't see each other that much, but we're in touch, and like Ann Michael, for instance, uh -huh. and uh, we, you know, we still keep up, and we just you know we'll always be friends. So, I think female friendships are really um, key to having women be comfortable with their lives. Future Julie and Katie here. Hi from the near future, y'all, or rather the not-so-distant past, once this episode is posted. When we started planning this episode, we made a list of several things we wanted to talk about. From 1950 to 1985 is the era of second wave feminism. It's a time of major social change and big changes for women too. We see books like The Feminine Mystique and The Second Sex, and there's a lot of 
exploration during this time on what women's roles should be and how women should be living. We also see portrayals in the media of women both in traditional roles like June Cleaver in Leave it to Beaver and Edith Bunker in All in the Family and women striking out on their own and developing friendships and careers in big cities like Mary and Rhoda in the Mary Tyler Moore show. When Katie mentioned that her mother-in-law had been a flight attendant in the 1960s, that just seemed like the perfect way to get this episode started. Absolutely. And we developed some questions that we wanted. The conversation we ended up having with her was so much more than we thought it would be or than we expected that it would be. We realized when we were reviewing the interview that showcasing Meg's lived experience during this time was really an opportunity to capture a lot of what we've been thinking of featuring in this episode, but in a much more vibrant way. Yeah, um, there were several points where she talked about things that lined up with our thoughts on what we wanted to talk about and what our research had indicated. What really struck me is the conflict kind of between her parents' expectations and then what she actually ended up doing with her life. Yeah, that and the fact that she actually had gone to school for something that was more traditional. She mentioned that she was kind of on a teaching path. Yeah, there was pressure on her to look a certain way in the job she did have. And the fact that she had to quit when she got married, I think these things really speak to the experience of women in that era that that we're talking about here from the the 1950s kind of up through obviously not as much into the 80s but certainly during the 50s 60s 70s that was kind of a norm for this time period and i i think she kind of explained that a lot in her you know her experience her what she shared with us about her life. Mm-hmm. I love how the airline was able to get around the law, this like newly implemented law by having flight attendants voluntarily quit instead of firing them. I really like that she lived with her girlfriends in the city and that it was the influence of a friend that even got her interviewing and got her thinking about even being a flight attendant in the first place. I caught that too. And it made me think of our earlier episode where we talked about how our friends can influence us. I also love how she sort of low key busted a myth that we've been working to get to the origins of in this particular sort of series on the history of women's friendships, this idea that women are catty and can't get along she really wasn't having any of that. Like she just pointed out that that was not her experience. That was not the case in her job. And that they all just came together knowing that they had a job to do and they did the work together. Yes. And then later in the interview, we also asked Meg what she looks for most in a friend. Um, And I think we should actually share that clip. So I'm going to add that in right after this. So you can kind of hear what what she is looking for in a friend and see how it compares to some of the research that we shared earlier about 
what women are really looking for, like what kind of qualities women are really looking for in a friend. So you talked about some of your really longstanding female friendships, and that made me think about some of the the statistics, I can't talk, some of the statistics that we've seen about what women value in friends and how that changes sort of over the course of of a woman's life, sort of what she's looking for and what she values. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say you value most in um, in a friendship? And has that changed sort of over the course of all of this, all of these amazing life experiences that you've had? Like, do you find it's been consistent or has it changed? It probably has changed. I can't. Um... I probably would have said earlier on that I wanted to be friends with people that were fun and meant by that that I could make plans with them and we would, you know, go out and have a good time and all that. But I really think that people that I have um, valued knowing over many, many years the greatest gift for me is that they are people who are naturally happy. They don't dwell on perceived slights and insults. They don't dwell on the negative, which everybody has in their lives. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person, so some of my friends who have been more religious um i'm still friends with but we're not we don't find common ground in that area but we do find common ground in just enjoying and appreciating life and humor and other people and happy experiences and having just getting up in the morning with a good attitude that's the kind of thing that i really think makes people want to be around you long term I love that me too and I love what she said about female friendships being key to women being comfortable in their own lives I think that's so true and something that we're working to help women achieve agreed Um, I think that was such a big motivating factor for us in putting this podcast together and kind of diving into this research. Gosh, it was such a, it was such a good conversation, you guys. As we talked, the interview sort of got off topic of what her experience was in the 1960s, but there were several sections where she talked about her friendships and we wanted to share those with you too. So um, we will add those clips in. Did you stay friends with any of the other women that were stewardesses with you? I did for a number of years, but I'm not really in touch with any of them now. Um, There were several that had longer careers than I did because they didn't get married as soon. And they were able to build up enough seniority to have very comfortable flight schedules during the month. And so they would really only be working uh, maybe eight days out of the month um, because after that time they would have built up enough hours so that they wouldn't, um, wouldn't get any more assignments. The longer you stayed with the airline, you, the 
the um, better it was in terms of your scheduling. I, I'm a member of two book clubs. <laughs> One of them, we've been doing this for like 40 years. And we don't read a specific book. We just call it book club. We all read all the time, but we don't really pick a book and talk about it. We just get together and drink wine once a month. And we've been through a lot of uh, divorces and deaths of spouses and all those kinds of things, children with problems um, together. And we really, we just aren't all together uh 100% crazy about each other's choices and things sometimes, but we always know that we'll just, we'll be doing book club as long as we can. That's one thing. I'm also in a women's investment group, which we've been meeting for a long time, and we put in a minimal amount of money, like $300 every six months, and this has been going on for a long time now. And we've done pretty well, but we have people in there who actually study the stock market. And then we have people who say, well, I think we ought to buy TJ Maxx stock because I'm in there every week and it's just bound to be a good stock. So not everybody is there with the same mindset, mm -hmm. but we all know that we're in a group that supports each other. So I think they're things like that that you can find uh, a lot of people have exercise groups or some other type of thing that they go to. And over time, these bonds between you become valuable. You know, at first you just barely know the people and, you know, you're just sort of around them, but you don't really count them as friends as such. Then they do become friends and they, they know you and you know them. So that's a, uh, a great thing when you ask yourself, how many people really know me beyond just, hi Meg, how's it going? <laughs> how many people really know how I feel about things or care? So it's good to have uh, women friends. I think it's really uh, almost crucial. Even though Meg's experience here isn't specific to the 1960s, we wanted to share it because we felt that it spoke to a larger conversation we've been having about female friendships in general. We've referenced Shasta Nelson before, but if you're not familiar with her work, she introduced the concept of the friendship triangle. This triangle is made up of positivity on the base, so what that means is, you know, the, the base, the foundation of your friendship is enjoying each other's time and company, coming away from your experience with that person, feeling good. And then the two sides of the triangle are vulnerability or being open and honest about who you are and your experiences and feelings. And then the other side is consistency or the amount of time that you dedicate to your friendships. And here, Meg is really sharing how she maintains consistency and how her circle of friends create time and space for their friendships. She's also speaking to vulnerability. She explained that each woman in her investment group is approaching that experience in that group from their own perspective and their own level of ability. Those women feel comfortable sharing this experience with each other, even though 
they may not be professional investors and they have faith that their friends will hold that space for them. And of course they do. And they show each other that it is a safe space by just meeting each other where they are. Meg also shared with us that she's had friendships that have lasted for upwards of 40 years, which I think is amazing. And just so you know, Julie, I plan to be friends with you for that long and more. You're, uh, you're kind of stuck with me. Same girl, same. But you're not just stuck with me. You're stuck with my whole clan. Sorry, it's a package deal. <laughs> and, you know, I hope that we're still doing this many years from now. I really enjoy this project of ours. And I think that there's a lot more to say and a lot more to be said about the power of friendship and the changing roles and perceptions of specifically women's friendships. That's so true. And actually, on that note, I think that we'll see a lot of that in our next episode. We're going to look at female friendships and how they're seen and portrayed in the last 30 years or so. So from 1986, really through the present day. I'm pretty excited about that next episode, um, specifically because it's a dive into the various ways that female friendships have been presented during our lifetimes. Um, So please join us in a few weeks for our final episode of our dive into the history of women's friendships. And as always, we would love to hear from you. So please feel free to email us at info at betterfriendships.com, I-N-F-O at betterfriendships.com. You can find us on Instagram, better underscore friendships. And we're also on Facebook, of course, Better Friendships, if that is how you'd prefer to reach out. Until next time, remember, there are tall ships and small ships. There are ships that sail the sea, but the best ships are friendships, and may they always be.